Welcome back to the Fraser Rice Podcast. Today we get to speak with Bill Yeo. Bill Yeo is the author of Our Way, which is the story of Philadelphia businessman Spike Yeo. He serves as a speaker, biographer, and strategist. Bill is also the third-generation owner of Day & Zimmerman, the family's 43,000-employee, century-old business. Welcome aboard, Bill. Thanks, Fraser. It's great to be here. So help us understand a little bit about your background and how uh, you went from working with the family business to becoming an author. Sure. No, I'd be happy to. So I was uh, born and raised in Philadelphia, and my family is uh, now the third generation and fourth generation owners of Day & Zimmerman, which is a 117-year-old business headquartered here in Philadelphia. And I had spent the majority of my career since college working at the business in a number of different uh, business unit and corporate roles and, and ultimately in some executive and leadership capacities. And um, I'd always written in my career, but never written as a career. And about three years ago, uh, my mom got sick, and during the trips back and forth to the hospital, my, my father started talking about his past in ways he never had before, and, and I found it very fascinating and started to think about maybe we'd hire a biographer to capture his story, and uh, then my mom subsequently passed away, and so I started thinking about different things and where I was in my life and decided, you know, why don't I be the one to, to capture Spike's story, my father's story, and uh, that's really how it got started. Oh, that's really cool. You know, I sort of think about this, and I got started reading the book, and, and it gets me to think about Ray Dalio's principles and some of the components of, you know, what makes people successful and, and how they learn from their mistakes. Uh, when did you start triangulating around that and focusing on your father's uh, successes and mistakes and the lessons learned from them? Sure. Well, you know, obviously, you know, being his son and the youngest of his five children and, and also having a little bit of time where we overlap professionally before, you know, our, my siblings and I bought the company from him, I got to see a lot of that in action from a business perspective, uh, but more so, obviously, from a family perspective. But what really started to come out as he started to talk about his past was what a challenging childhood he had had. And, and we had always kind of known that, but he hadn't talked a lot about it. And, um, you know, he, he really had a a very tough, contentious relationship with his father. His father was, was married four times. Uh, his mother was a, an alcoholic and ended up dying from drink. And so, you know, we talk all the time about building resilience and grit in children. And uh, unfortunately, it was built in spike, but in a very difficult way. And so getting into the interview process with him and unpacking a lot of those things, it really uh, became apparent and, and kind of amazing how much he was able to really pivot off of a tough childhood and his, his college years at Duke were really the inflection point, and then to set himself out the vow to be, you know, a man of integrity, to be a man who's always optimistic, who's, who's always engaging with people and those kind of things. And so I think it was a lot of the failures and difficulties of childhood that really spurred him on to the successful life he had or has had and really buoyed a lot by uh, my mom, his wife of 56 years, who he met during his, uh, his time at Duke. So... So, so tell us a little bit about Dane Zimmerman and what they do and how Spike's leadership and the attributes that he brought to it, how he helped take what was a you know, good business founded by your grandfather and, and took it to the next level. Sure. So just a, a real quick history lesson. So Day and Zimmerman itself was started in 1901 by a couple engineers out of uh, the University of Pennsylvania, uh, independent of our family. And then in the early 1940s, my grandfather, Harold Yeo, started a, uh, a company that ended up being one of the nation's first technical staffing companies, so for part-time and contract positions in the technical areas. In 1961, both Yeo and Day, and, and that was called the Yeo Company, both Yeo and Day and Zimmerman had grown, and um, our, my grandfather ended up, as the smaller company, Yeo, buying Day and Zimmerman, the larger company. And so starting in 1961 to today, the Yeo family owns Day and Zimmerman, and the Yeo Company is a subsidiary of Day and Zimmerman underneath it. Um, 
you know, early on in, in Day and Zimmerman's career, there were some really interesting projects. Uh, seven years into our existence in 1908, we helped build the Panama Canal and set a world record for hauling concrete. In the uh, 19, around 1914, we invented the machine that wraps Hershey's Kisses that's largely still in use today. Uh, in the 1930s, we worked with uh, the Safeway Foods Corporation to devise the first layout for a supermarket. So uh, a lot of things very innovative have been around the company since it started. Um, my father always worked in the business in school summers and, and more or less full-time after college. And in the mid-'70s, he bought his father out. And as I had mentioned earlier, they had a, a pretty contentious relationship. So it wasn't, uh, you know, my, my father had to outbid two outside contractors, two outside companies, uh, to retain control of the business. But he was, you know, set on wanting to do that. He'd lined up uh, his managers to do a, a management buyout, which was not something that was all that common at the time. And then they were also able to use the assets and the contracts of the firm as collateral to borrow the resources to buy out his father. So they did both a management buyout and a leverage buyout at a time in the, in the mid-'70s when neither one of them were very, uh, were very common. And, you know, from there, uh, he really set out to really instill a culture of growth, a culture of entrepreneurship, uh, but above everything, and a culture about a focus on people, but above everything else, a culture on values and specifically on the value of integrity, that, you know, that was something that, that has always fueled his life and how he's operated and then permeated every facet of the business. So it, one of the things that I was struck about uh, reading a little bit about Dane Zimmerman, I, the motto is is both so simple but so powerful. Where, where did that come from, and, and, and I guess how did that come from the value system that, sure. he, that he developed? Yeah, so the, our motto is we do what we say. Uh, it's something we're super proud of. Uh, we trademarked it years and years ago, and it really does, in one phrase, sum up the culture and the attitude of a 43,000-employee company. And, you know, we, we talk about it both from the standpoint of if we're making a commitment to a customer or to a supplier or a partner that we are committed to do what we say we will do, and it even boils down to a simply, if you call me in the morning and I'm busy and I say I'm going to call you back in the afternoon, that's a commitment that we expect to honor. So the, the genesis of it was uh, there was a period of time about 10 years into my father's ownership and uh, chairmanship of the business where there were a couple pockets uh, of culture and, and divisions within the business that were not abiding by integrity at all times. And um, so uh, my dad, and actually I talk about this story in the book, came up with the the phrase, I do what I say, uh, you know, to get people to focus on that whole idea of accountability. Um, in a, uh, at least by our family standards, a, a, a number of uh, things happened and people suggested that, geez, you know, data should really be we, not I. And there's no less than probably three or four people who all claim sort of be the ones to spur him to change the the pronoun from I to we. And he did that. And that really just had everything drop right in place because that introduced the whole idea of a team accountability to things. And, um, you know, we have lapel pins, we have signs all over our offices. It's on our stationery, our letterheads, our logos. And it it really does better than anything personify what our large but very much family-driven business is all about. The motto is established and is sort of the centerpiece about how you, how you do things at the business level. How did he involve community and family uh, into that corporate mission? And you know, your brother is running the company now. You were involved with it. You've had various family members part of it. How did he think about that and and put that into the sort of the corporate framework? Sure. You know, he was always a family first person. You know, and I think largely stemming from the difficult childhood and, and family experience he had when he was younger. So he always had the family be a part of the business. Um, whenever he'd do corporate retreats, uh, his, his family would often go with him. He would have, you know, several times during the year, different events at, at his house. He and my mom would, and, uh, you know, we'd always be present at those. 
uh, we work in the business a lot. So really, the, the the strand of family, of business, and of you know community and philanthropy have always been the three sort of key thrusts in his life. Um, you know, the family side fueled by, as I said, the 56-year marriage to my mom. Uh, they had five children, 14 grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, uh, you know, and uh, the way that he's had always combined the family with the business, so it, they kind of went hand-in-hand hand with each other. Um, you know, and when he took the business over from his father, it was a little over $100 million in the mid-'70s, and by the time we bought it from him in the late-'90s, it was $1.1 billion with 16,000 employees. So his ability to grow the business and be very entrepreneurial and, and take risks, but also infuse this family culture and this family presence were, were things that, you know, not only grew the business, but set the business up for success when my siblings and I, you know, came more into management and ultimately leadership positions. It can't have possibly been a perfectly smooth experience getting through that. Where were some of the difficulties along that road? Yeah, no, and, and it absolutely wasn't. You know, we've learned a lot. And anytime when you're talking about a family business, the whole idea of succession is really a challenge, and and no two generations experience a succession event uh, together or the same, and so, you know, there were certain things that when we were getting ready to buy the business from our father that he was very uh, involved with, and, and most notably about you know the valuation of the stock and the treatment of his one uh, remaining non-family shareholder, uh, his one remaining partner who was our CFO. But beyond that, he really said to the five of us, you, you five need to go figure out what this business is going to look like once I'm gone. And, um, and that provided some real opportunities for us, but also some challenges for us. So when we took ownership of the business, the five of us you know, had an average age of 33, and we had 16,000 employees. So we put in a number of practices and, and, and governance uh, mechanisms to ensure that the business, and most notably you know, senior management, knew that you know, the five of us were, were not even close to equipped to being able to run the business. So really trying to separate those ideas of when you have your employee or your manager hat on and when you have your owner hat on was, was, was a learning curve for us. But, you know, we're, we're proud to say we didn't lose any of our senior managers at the time. We faced some economic headwinds shortly after the transition and then shortly after that 9-11, but the company was able to weather a lot of those things as we have for over a century. And, and you know, you grow from those mistakes and grow from those challenge times, and, and that's something we were able to do. One of the things that I see in my day job uh, as it relates to family businesses, and it sounds like you were blessed in the sense that you had people who within that next generation who were both qualified and interested. How did you diagnose strengths and weaknesses within what I would describe as your five-member uh, management ownership team so that you knew ahead of time that you had the right people in place, notwithstanding sort of cultural lineage and, and those types of attributes? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, there's a couple different aspects of it. You know, part of it is just having an overriding philosophy and commitment to running the business as a business and understanding if, you know, understanding where are the places that family involvement and that familiness uh, can affect that and help that, but where are the places where it may hurt that. So, so we were very conscious of that at all times. And then among the five of us, we spent a lot of time early on working together uh, as a group, working with different uh, consultants and coaches, and mainly initially exploring, um, you know, the dynamics among us, the communications among us, things that may have been getting in the way of us that we weren't even aware of. So, for example, as I mentioned, I'm the youngest of five in the family. Uh, the other four kids are about five and a half, six years apart, and then I'm five years behind the four of them. And uh, during this work with this one coach, uh, we discovered that <clears throat> I had always had a feeling that the four of them kind of excluded me, and they were sort of the four older ones, and they had this kind of club, and I wasn't a member of it. 
Uh, conversely, they all had an opinion that I sort of was aloof to them and, and didn't want to be part of their club kind of thing. And, and I remember the, the day and the place and, the, and, and everything about when we all kind of realized that wasn't at all what either side was thinking, and everybody wanted to be five, not four and one. And just going through those kinds of things and some of the, the cliche things that family business will talk about, that you don't want to let the fact that, that you know sibling A didn't lend sibling B their baseball glove when they were younger, therefore they're not going to you know, endorse their initiative as, as working professionals. And a lot of those things really helped set the table for us to understand, <clears throat> you know, A, how do we communicate? B, how do we keep the company's needs, you know, first and foremost, because we have this, this great important company that's important to our family, but, you know, more important to our employees, to our customers. And then thirdly, when, as you as you'd mentioned, you know, when kind of Interests started to diverge, and, and subsequent to uh, to our buying my father out, two of my siblings ended up leaving the business and cashing out their ownership stakes. We were able to go through those processes in a way, or those those events in a way that didn't didn't tear the family apart. You know that that people were leaving the business but not leaving the family, and and a way to kind of keep some cohesion in place, even as we all sort of started to separate a little bit. So uh, one of the things that I'm struck by your example there is that you, you the next generation, were doing a lot of this yourself. Uh, where did your father uh, help out in terms of providing advice or guiding principles, and then where did you bring in expertise to help you navigate this uh, this new course? Sure. So, you know, uh, Spike had a really uh, interesting approach as regard to helping us out. So he's been a natural leader his whole life. He has a very strong philosophy that says, you know, get involved in a lot of things if you're passionate about them, but don't get involved in them if you're not prepared to lead them and make a difference in them. And so he really, you know, exhibited that track record both in terms of his business career and his volunteer career. But part of that ethos for him was that, you know, once his leadership tenure was over, it was time for him to move aside and let the next generation or the next leader take over, whether that was his kids in the business or somebody who succeeded him as the chair of whatever organizations he was involved with. And part of that was he's, he, uh, he's been a member of the Young Professionals Organization, YPO, and, and that was an incredibly uh, beneficial source of mentorship and advice and training for him in terms of not just business, but, you know, across all facets of his life. And one of the things he had seen through his time at YPO was when the patriarch of a business, you know, hangs on too long and is still, you know, owning and operating the business into their, you know, 70s and even their 80s and sometimes 90s. And you have this next generation of capable people who have also grown up in the business who are kind of a hand, hand tied behind their back. And so, he didn't want to see that happen with us. And then the other part of it, we do a lot of work with the U.S. government. And in, in the military world, there's a practice uh, when <clears throat> a base commander for a military base is typically a lieutenant colonel or a colonel, uh, that, that officer will be assigned to run that base for, say, two to three years. When their term is up, they leave that base and they never return. You know, it's somebody else's command now. And, and he he fostered and, and believed in that kind of philosophy as well. So him with YPO, uh, he did. We there was a two-year transition period when my oldest brother, who's our chairman and CEO, was a president under my father. Um, they both talk about that as being one of the highlights of their careers, where there was really a lot of mentoring and training and sharing of responsibility and the like. And then, as I'd mentioned, we as a five some have you know some of us benefit from YPO. Uh, we continue to use family business consultants. We do a lot of networking within the family business community. And from a business perspective, a number of us have been very engaged in trade associations. And in fact, all of the the owners uh, of the business have all chaired at one time or another a, a large trade association representing some facet of Day and Zimmerman. Neat. Uh, so, how how do you intersect uh, with, when you had these decisions being made? And obviously, with the, your brother and your father having a two year transition, 
from a board of directors standpoint and then from the employees standpoint, communication to those constituencies, I, I think, is part and parcel with what you would do. How did you get vendors and customers aligned with the with your decisions? You know, a lot of it, as I said earlier, was that that, that commitment to run the business as a business. So um, whoever were in those customer-facing aspects, whoever in those vendor-facing aspects, our financial teams that dealt with our banking relationships, we always wanted to be very communicative with them and let them know that, you know, that ownership is changing, but these are all the things we're committed to and, and to your success. And um, that, you know, we, one of the things we did when <clears throat> we bought out my father is we put an advisory board in place. So as I said, you know, we were all in our you know, 20s and 30s at the time, and so we, we collected the proverbial gray hairs from various aspects of industry and family business experience and all those kind of things who were able to not only give us advice as a young ownership group, but also we charged them with the responsibility of any time there was a promotion opportunity within the business that involved a Yo family member, they, the board of advisors, made the ultimate decision, not the family or the manager, as to who was going to get that job. Because, again, we wanted to make sure that that our employees and our customers and, most importantly, our managers all knew that we were committed to the business being run successfully. Philanthropy is a major part of the tools that we use to help families make decisions together to sort of find some common ground as to shared values. And it's obvious that, you know, values are a big part of the business and your family. Uh, Where did philanthropy fit in in terms of the corporate transition and, and how does it fit in going forward? Yeah, no, and it, it's a really important part of our family and our business's activities, our commitment to community, our commitment to philanthropy, our commitment to giving back, to recognizing that, you know, those who are blessed with more have a higher obligation to do more. And that really started a lot with our father. Uh, his, his first involvement was really in the Philadelphia business community, um, you know, as, as a business leader in a growing company. So things like the Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce and other industrial development corporations and things like that. And then he'd always had a passion for children and for education, so he was uh, very involved in various regional and national roles with the Boy Scouts. Um, he was chairman of the board of the Haverford School here in, in Philadelphia, uh, chairman of the board of Duke University. So a lot of things having to do with education in terms of giving back. And then also from a broader community perspective, he's been the chairman of the board of uh, the, the community that he lives at down in Florida. Uh, he's had a number of uh, national roles with the U.S. Olympic Committee in, in fundraising and governance otherwise. And as an ancillary benefit to that, he had the chance to meet, I think, eight different U.S. presidents, including Ronald Reagan, his, his real star, twice, which was a neat thing. But it's important for us to let people know, both as a family and as a business, that we're, we're committed to giving back. And, and so we focus on the cities where we operate, and, and largely Philadelphia, and we focus on education, we focus on underserved youth, and you know the ways that we can use the resources we've been blessed with to make an impact for others. Back to a strictly business question, how, how do you compete for talent? Uh, I, I run into different family businesses and then even publicly traded bigger businesses, and they you know, get everything from the bemoaning of the millennials and how they operate to right. uh, just sort of a, a gap between jobs that we're training for and jobs that are required. Uh, you've got a big company that uh, in many ways is on the forefront of that. How, how do you deal with that type of issue? Sure. Yeah. And again, it it, uh, it comes back to the whole thing of running the business as a business. So we have, you know, all of the jobs in the in the company from you know first line entry level up through you know top executive jobs are all, you know, benchmark positions with job descriptions. They're compared to what comparable jobs would be in those industries. Um, you know, they're paid accordingly. There's training and development offered. All the things that any other company, whether they're public or private, would would try to provide for that. Um, 
So from that perspective, we feel good that we're, we're paying where we should. Um, the flip side of it is uh, sometimes when we are competing for talent against large public companies, obviously those companies can provide stock options. Uh, we do have a phantom stock program, which, which bridges some of that gap. But, you know, at the end of the day, if somebody has a chance to go to another business where maybe, you know, there's, there's an IPO in the offing or anything along those lines, uh, you know, periodically, I'd say once every couple of years, we wish that person well, and, you know, because they may have a chance to have a you know, pretty unprecedented payday for their family. Um, the other side of it is that a lot of people, and we've got, you know, a lot of executives with, with 10, 20-year, 30-year tenure with the business that, that, you know, recognize that, you know, that grass may not be greener on the other side. And I like, and, you know, they, they tell us uh, both by returning and by what they say that, you know, they like the family aspect and the esprit de corps within our business. And the fact that as, as a private company, we're able to take a longer-term view in terms of, how we support our markets, how we price our jobs, and those kind of things, because we're not as consumed with the 90-day returns that our public competitors are. So it's really a combination of all those things in terms of competing for talent. And then the last thing, as you mentioned, we and everybody else, you know, with having three-plus generations in the workforce, you know, with the boomers and the Gen Xers and the millennials and even the the, the folks behind them now, really trying to understand, you know, because the value propositions are different for those different cohorts and, and trying to understand how we can make sure that we're listening, that we're, pro- that we're focused on innovation, that we're focused on digital and social and all the kinds of things that, you know, for businesses like Day and Zimmerman, we're in the construction engineering business, the staffing business, the government contracting business. These may not on the surface seem like the sexiest businesses for a 20-something to come into, but we like to think that the way we approach the businesses with that list of things I just mentioned still make it an attractive place to come. I was just at a conference yesterday where uh, uh, the CEO of an insurance company was talking about this subject. And you know, he said, when talking to millennials and they say, well, would you want to work for an insurance company? None of the hands go up. But then right. he's like, well, if you want to go to a, if you want to go to a company that's purpose driven, that provides good income and is on the leading edge of what it's doing, would you be like to be involved with that? And then the hands <laughs> do shoot up. And so yeah. many times it's a yeah. messaging as part of what you're doing there uh, that helps to break through. For sure, for sure, yes. So you're on the forefront of really kind of a, a compelling example of business succession and family succession gone right. And uh, you've, you've got the book uh, that, that sort of encapsulates that through the story of your father. And you're now working on something called Familytics, which which helps to bring these lessons to bear and to provide some advice to other people and other families that are going through this. Take us through that a little bit and where obviously it came from your example in, in a way to, in a, one sense, how to give back to the community on that front, uh, but also do it in a business sense. Take us through what it is and sure. what you're working on there. Yeah. So, you know, and the first topic I really talk about with Familytics is around succession because of, of all the different issues that family businesses face. I, I I believe by far the most challenging is succession. Um, you know, the statistics say that somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of, gener- of businesses are successfully transferred to the from the first generation to the second, and then something like 12 to 15 percent to the third, and you know, three to four percent to the fourth. So, you know, the, the technical term I use is we suck at succession um, in the family business space. Um, now, to, uh, a slight caveat, particularly on the first to second generation, is sometimes. You know, companies that are startups may be acquired, they may be merged, things may happen where there's no opportunity for succession. Or in other cases, you may have an entrepreneur who started a business and they've had some real success in it, and the, and the gift or the, the legacy they're giving their children is not that business, but it's the spirit of entrepreneurship. And it's basically, hey, I've done mine, I've given you the skills, now you go do yours. So 
Um, but with that said, uh, you know, when you're talking about going from the first generation, which is, you know, the patriarch or the matriarch kind of thing, to the second generation, which is typically that sibling, you know, partnership or that sibling team, and then to the third generation, where you're often, now you're into a cousin consortium. And in each one of those phases, things get progressively more complex, you know, geometrically more complex almost in terms of different aspirations, different skill sets. The introduction of spouses uh, it has a significant impact in terms of the kinds of values and ethos and priorities that that offspring will have, uh, and they're you know the the, the elements of, of esprit de corps on the one hand versus the desire to have people be independent, free thinking people, you know particularly at that cousin phase, you know become a real challenge. So, you know one of the things that that business probably don't spend enough time doing is focusing on the the roles and the issues around ownership and stewardship of a, of a business as opposed to employment and management of a business. So as I transitioned out a lot of my work activities to, to write the book on Spike and think more broadly about family business governance and succession, I, I came up with this idea of familylytics. And you know, I realized that over you know, 25 years of, of owning and operating a business, I'd had the chance to have conversations with well over 100 other business-owning families. And in all those cases, I documented those conversations and kind of distilled them down to you know, their important parts of it plus, you know, dozens and dozens of advisors along the way, too many conferences to, to, to mention, and really, you know, recognize that, you know, we talk today in the business world about analytics and big data and some of those kind of things, and, and f- the idea behind analytics is how does that apply to the family business uh, world? And so it's really not about, you know, roll up your sleeves on the ground, kind of facilitating a family business meeting or helping somebody sketch out a uh, an employment policy or, or those kind of things, but really looking at a at a higher level around what are the value systems, what are the master planning and roadmap activities, what are the, the elements of a family constitution, the real infrastructure, strategic uh, initiatives and efforts and processes that families need to go through across generations to, you know, hopefully ensure success. I have a very strong bias and, and passion for family businesses succeeding through the generations. That You know, something like 65% of the U.S. GDP is, is family business driven. Um, you know, and worldwide in other parts of the world, it's even higher than that. And uh, the whole idea of, of business being a way for families to work together and to make a difference in their communities and with their employees and customers is something that I'm real passionate about. And Familytics is really just trying to use not only the Yo family and Dan Zimmerman's story, but these hundreds of other families and their stories as a way to help other businesses succeed and, and be successful. And, and, you know, the last comment I'll make on it is in terms of, you know, our family and our succession, I, the book that I wrote talks about G1 to G2, meaning first generation and second generation. I was an active participant in G2, meaning our father, to G3, my siblings and I. And then uh, now I'm, you know, helping guide and work and lead with our business and our family in terms of generate, you know, succession from G3 to G4. And, and every one of the successions really is is different from the one before it. And the thing I always like to say is that in our case, as the third generation, with, with the fourth generation, there are an infinite number of ways that G4 can choose to govern and steward the business. And the only one of those infinite number of ways we know that won't work is the one that we as G3 would come up with on our own without their input. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really that balance of now we all have the gray hair, so how do you provide the gray hair experience and, and the best practices that we've learned, but combine that with that idea of accountability and ownership and, and paint on the hands of the, the succeeding generation 
to really own what the model looks like after they've you know come into control. Well, what are some of those practices? How do you, and I'm not thinking ropes courses and things like that, but how do you get the generation following or even people within your current generation to communicate and work together without, without doing it on the crown jewel and risking major mistakes made at that level? Yeah, and it's, it's Fraser. it's a real challenge, uh, particularly when you, as I said, get into that kind of cousin level. Um, you know, so our next generation has, you know, 11 members in it, two are married and have, you know, and, and one has children, but they're, the, the oldest is 35, the youngest is 12. So we've got a significant age. It's really almost a generation and a half within that. So, you know, the couple best practices with that are, you know, first and foremost, it's just communicate, communicate, communicate. And, you know, the best way to do that is to spend time together, uh, something I, I picked up earlier this year at a conference was, you know, if people are going to are going to own or govern together, they need to know each other and they need to be friends. And in order to be friends, you have to spend time together. And so, a lot of uh, you know multi generation family businesses will have on a regular every maybe twelve eighteen months they'll have family weekends or family retreats or family vacations or things like that, which are a chance to get people together. There might be some light touch about business discussion, but it's more about just developing relationships and bonds and getting to know each other and build trust. And, you know, in in the book, I talk about a lot of these in our family came to be known as command performances. And ultimately, command performances ended up having a, a bit of a negative tone in terms of our generation, in terms of being forced to go do things. But the other side of that coin is that if there's not some element of compelling people to come together, you know, life being as busy as that just won't happen. So it's really about that. The next part is, you know, just learning from others. You know, there's, there's coaches, consultants, conferences, family business forums, YPO, you know, seeking other businesses and, and having a chance to talk with them because it really is a, it's a very unique set of stakeholders, family business owners. Uh, and, and I've, again, for decades have been, I continue to be amazed how I will meet other owners of family businesses. And within minutes of meeting them, we are having a, a candid, you know, very raw, very open, confidential discussion with total confidence that it's not going to go anywhere because my stuff isn't any more complicated than their stuff and their stuff isn't any more complicated than my stuff. And it's a, it's a great way to support and learn from others. And, and then the last thing as a, as a practice for that is always making sure you're running a business like a business. And the, the, the moment that some of those ownership cracks or ownership misalignment or, or, or issues start to infiltrate their way into management and into decision-making and into business is when, you know, employee engagement is going to slow down, uh, turnover is going to increase, sales may slow down, customers may start to go elsewhere, and that death spiral can be pretty fast. Right. I've seen it where what you just talked about, running a business like a business, when, when the business is run as a pure income generator to, you know, fund the Lamborghini habit of one of the family members, uh, it, it can get dark very quickly, as you noted. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and, and it's a shame because there's, you know, you can have businesses that can be one, two, three, five generations old, and you never know when that's going to happen. One of the lessons I've seen, too, and this goes back to your getting the communication right and getting it started early, the the worst thing that can happen is when you're trying to resolve these issues when you're settling in a state. Uh, <laughs> because not only is that a complicated, awful process in and of itself, but you're dealing with a lot of emotions uh, yes. that, that are completely different from the business decisions that have to be made and oftentimes the legal decisions that, that aren't part of your control. And to have that be the first experience where families are working working together or even communicating together, that that is not the crucible you want to be testing it <laughs> under. Right, exactly, uh, exactly. No, and it's and <clears throat> in fact, when I was first, uh, you know, working on the whole idea of familytics, what 
what really I felt was there was there was kind of a, a gap in the marketplace or in the service offering where you've got people that handle estate issues and people who do tax planning and governance planning and business succession and sort of more of the the hard gut side of it. But as you just pointed out, a lot of that is intended to either avoid with or manage their way through those doomsday situations. And then on the front end, you've got certainly, you know, psychologists and life coaches and facilitators and people who help break down a lot of the sort of communication issues and interpersonal issues and motivational and aspirational issues and those kind of things. But I think there's a space in between those two that really focuses on what are the core tools and, as I said earlier, you know, the value systems and the roadmaps and the master planning efforts that can help a family align on, you know, what things to focus on and when. So, for example, with our family, about uh, 10 years ago, for two or three years, I spent a long time talking to a number of different, you know, large, internationally well-known brand name family businesses down to, you know, small first, second, third generation local shops and came up with the whole idea of a master plan because we would be working on the various things we'd be working on as an ownership family. And then we find, oh, gosh, we'd not contemplate it when we'd put a fiduciary board in place or we'd not contemplate it if there's ever going to be a foundation or a family office or a dividend policy or a liquidation plan or all these different things. So eventually we put together a master plan that's just a very simple short-term, medium-term, long-term, and just these little you know, dots or buckets or squares that have all these different things that an owning family needs to focus on. And my belief is it's not as important the order that those things are in or which one comes before each other else, but it's the conversation you have to know that, A, we've got everything covered, and B, are we all aligned that we should be dealing with items 1, 7, and 5 long before 2, 4, and 6 kind of thing. And that's I'm not sure that, that families spend as much time about that because they work on the interpersonal side, they work on the, the estates and the, the wealth planning and all that, but that, that middle part is really where Familytics is trying to help out. Sure. So how do you, when you're talking to families and you, or maybe from the examples that you've seen, uh, how do you think about staffing around that? Or maybe a better way to put it is at what point did the advisors that help you become successful, are they not necessarily appropriate for the new challenges that you've faced uh, or now are graduated into? Sure. Yeah, no, and that that's a real challenge um, because, you know, that, that uh, obviously you want people who know you, but there's a whole expression about familiarity breeds contempt as well. Um, so, you know, we, for example, as, as our ownership group, uh, we have uh, worked with three different primary family business consultants. And, and the first one, and, and they sort of each fit the stages of, of where the business was. So the first one, as I mentioned earlier on, was about helping us with communications and interpersonal dynamics and those kind of things. Then we moved on largely to talking about more business strategy type things and ownership's role and growth and something that was more about ownership as an asset into the business. And, and then we eventually graduated out of that to now the phase that we're in is really talking about large multi-generation succession. So we're now working with a, with a coach and an organization who really that's their bread and butter. So I think it's being aware of what you know, as some people like to say, what the stages and ages of your business, where are you in terms of how that evolves? Um, and then from a board perspective, whether you have an advisory board or a fiduciary board, you know, that whole idea of term limits can be a very difficult thing to come to, to, to terms with because you, you spend a lot of time getting people up to speed, you build that trust, they start to learn where your blind spots are, where your strengths are, and they can be a good mirror for you. On the other hand, you want to make sure you're continuing to infuse new talent and new ideas and new ways of thinking. So it, it really becomes... You know, and sometimes a, a bit of a an engineering exercise to make sure you're you're retaining that 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 uh, advice and that input and that stewardship for people who know you well, 
but then continuing to refresh it with people who are maybe more current or have a different lens in terms of the way business runs today. Really cool. Bill, uh, lots of great lessons from you. How do we get a hold of Our Way? Uh, what's the best way to get a copy of the book? Sure. Um, well, it's available on Amazon. If you just search Our Way, O-U-R Way, uh, and Bill Yo, uh, you'll find it. And it's available in a number of different formats. And um, I also have a website, which is ourwaybook.com, which uh, that'll link you back to Amazon. It also in there talks about uh, Familytics. So there's more information to find on that. And then uh, finally, on Facebook, I have an author page. So if you search Bill Yo Author, and that's Y-O-H is the last name, on Facebook, you can like and follow that page. And I, I update that page periodically with different events that I'm doing uh, in various states and also uh, you know, different excerpts from the book and, and other thought leadership pieces that I've written and been involved with. So, And I'd love to have uh, conversations with anybody about any of the topics we've discussed and see how we can help each other uh, have better family businesses together. Terrific. Bill, thank you for being on. Thanks, Fraser. You've been listening to my conversation with Bill Yo. He's the author of Our Way, the story of Philadelphia businessman Spike Yo. By the way, this was our 25th podcast. We've been doing this for over two years now. You can find other podcasts at FraserRice.com. Thanks again and have a great day.